Facebook moves fast because of vision, collaboration, and trust. The fast pace of development is enabled by constantly improving infrastructure and a sense of unity throughout the company. In Facebook's early days, there was an emphasis on rapidly deploying new code to drive constant improvement and experimentation. Product quality was maintained by engineers closely checking each other's code reviews, rather than writing detailed unit test suites. Facebook engineers had a sense for how the product should operate, and they were able to evaluate whether a new feature was working properly by testing a live version of that feature. At Facebook, the vision of the company is clearly communicated to the employees. Every employee within Facebook can articulate the vision for the company, and they will use similar language in describing that vision. Since the employees are aligned on strategy, they can also align in their implementation of product features. This reduces conflicts across roles and between teams. Facebook has also shown a willingness to trust its engineers. Trust was exemplified by Facebook's tolerance for failures in the early days. When an engineer broke a build or shipped a feature that failed to gain traction, that engineer was usually not punished. They may have even been rewarded if the company could learn significantly from such an error. Raylene Young was an engineer at Facebook from 2009 to 2015. As she moved from individual contributor to manager to engineering director, Raylene worked on products including newsfeed, timeline, privacy, and sharing. Raylene joins the show to give her reflections on the Facebook product and engineering environment. She explained how Facebook's culture of collaboration, vision, and trust drive fast product development and minimize conflict. Raylene left Facebook and joined Stripe, where she worked on payment systems and international expansion for almost four years. The new Software Engineering Daily app is live in the app stores for iOS and Android. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as social features. You can comment on episodes and have discussions with other members of the community, including me. I'll be commenting on each episode to give some meta thoughts. So if you want to have a discussion around these different episodes, you can jump onto the app or onto softwaredaily.com to share your thoughts. And you can become a paid subscriber to get ad-free episodes by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Also, Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. Find Collabs is having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. If you're working on a project and you're looking for collaborators, or if you want to work on a music project, or if you're looking for programmers or co-founders, Find Collabs is a great place to find other collaborators or to post your projects and post your progress. With that said, let's get on to today's show. LogDNA allows you to collect logs from your entire Kubernetes cluster in a minute with two kubectl commands. Whether you're running 100 or 100,000 containers, you can effortlessly aggregate and parse and search and monitor your logs across all nodes and pods in a centralized log management tool. Each log is tagged with a pod name and a container name and a container ID and a namespace and a node. LogDNA is logging that helps with your Kubernetes clusters. 
There are dozens of other integrations with major language libraries and AWS and Heroku and FluentD and more. Logging on Kubernetes can be difficult, but LogDNA simplifies the logging process of Kubernetes clusters. Give it a try today with a 14-day trial. There's no commitment. There's no credit card required. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash logdna to give it a shot and get a free t-shirt. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash logdna. Thank you to LogDNA for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Raylene Young, you are a former engineering director at Facebook. You're now the business lead and head of engineering for APAC at Stripe. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When you joined Facebook, you were working on Newsfeed. And from the other conversations I've had with engineers who have worked at Facebook, there is a saying, at least that applies to the time when you were there, which is, so the newsfeed goes, the rest of the Facebook product goes. So my sense is that the newsfeed had a huge impact on the direction of Facebook. Describe how the product development work within newsfeed affected the rest of the Facebook product. It's actually funny. I've never heard that saying, but I think part of that must be when you're working on a product or team, you maybe don't sort of realize how people talk about it on the other teams. I would say... The newsfeed was really an internal platform for many other Facebook products. So this meant if you were working on something related to user actions or different types of content, you would have to interact with the feed as a system in some way. So I think that was really, it was really quite interconnected. Hmm. When you joined the company, Facebook was starting the shift to mobile and this has been a pivotal point in some of the other conversations we've had. How did the shift to mobile impact your work on Newsfeed? I think it really affected everyone at the company at the time. I don't know that there was necessarily something very Newsfeed specific about it. It's funny to think about this now, but at the time, I think there were very few engineers at Facebook and maybe even in the industry at large that had a lot of mobile development experience. So there was this scramble sort of across the company to figure out how to train and hire enough people to build everything that we needed to. On Newsfeed, perhaps that problem was even more complex given there were many different front end products on each of the different mobile platforms. And of course, we had to think about how that interacted with the existing backend data model and the web and mobile products. Today, there are many products that have a newsfeed across the internet. What's the key to developing a good newsfeed? Yeah, this is a, it's a really hard question. I don't know that there's really one kind of easy secret or key to creating a great newsfeed. I think probably what's most interesting about the format itself is how varied it really is and how much it depends on the specific type of content that's part of your product or even the audience. So for example, I think if you have a more visual feed, like one that's filled with photos and videos, freshness is a big factor. Typically because if you've seen a video once, you probably don't need to watch it again. If your content is more discussion-based or it's kind of a comments, when new comments get added, that actually may warrant 
that content staying fresh and being on top of the feed. So if you think of something like Reddit or Hacker News, it looks very different from YouTube. So I think a lot of the key there is just keeping in mind the different types of content, what keeps it interesting, and what your audience is looking for. Do you recall any particularly hard engineering problems that you worked on while you were on the newsfeed team? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of things that are challenging. I think one of the earliest technical redesign projects I worked on was when we figured out how to aggregate actions and content when generating newsfeed. So just kind of explain, I think we think of today news feeds as aggregations of content. But at the time, every individual action or story that was created would be evaluated sort of distinctly. So one example is, you know, let's say Jeff commented on Mary's photo, and that happened an hour ago. And then 30 minutes later, Bob comments on the same photo. Before these changes, news feed would look at each of those actions distinctly and kind of figure out what to do with do with them. And the project I worked on was to really redesign the whole product from back into front end that would already know how to combine those actions together. So it would actually look at a joint blob that said, you know, Jeff and Bob commented on Mary's photo rather than looking at each of the actions separately. I think what was really tricky about this was it was very much a full stack redesign and you had to think both about what the UI and UX would look like, but also about how those data model changes would be represented in the backend and sort of managed across you know, simultaneous versions of the backend that was running. It also was a really long project, so I think that made it pretty memorable for me too. What I find interesting about news feeds across the internet, you know, I grew up using the internet and my ways of consuming information pre-news feed were so different. A lot of it was around forums and just going to, I guess, Wikipedia-like sites. And post-newsfeed, it feels like I'm able to consume much more information about goings-on around the world and around you know communities. What's your perspective for how newsfeeds have changed how we consume information? I think something that's pretty noticeable from what you described as the feeds of your, of your childhood is the use of multimedia. I think today, when you imagine the newsfeed product, you actually see a pretty vibrant product. You think of photos, you think of videos, you think of conversations sometimes happening in real time. And so I think with feeds that focus on bringing a combination of that media and also keeping it fresh, thinking about how to show you the most immediately relevant content, I think it creates a much more dynamic view into what's going on at the time. Was there a use of quote-unquote machine learning when you were on the newsfeed team, or did that come later? The earliest versions of finding the right content for feed was pretty heuristic-based, actually. So a lot of it was around looking at the types of content, and yeah, so so not it wasn't actually not that sophisticated at the time. It came later. Okay. So you started at Facebook pretty early in your career, and you went from being an individual contributor, an engineer, to becoming an engineering director. Describe the promotion path that you took at Facebook. Yeah, it's hard to speak about this too generically, given I was at the company at a very particular stage of growth. So even as I was learning, taking on more, the ladders and levels would kind of change year over year and evolve. So 
rather than go like level by level, there are a few main milestones or things that happened. The first one was making the switch from an individual contributor role to a management role. I think that was a pretty gradual change at the time, like when it first happened. But once I did cut over, I was on a pretty different career path at the company than I would have been if I'd stayed on the IC side. I think the second was, you know, rather than fixating on one part of a ladder or level description, I think I generally took the approach of I focused on always growing and taking on harder or more complex problems and just delivering value. And I think that just kind of took me through the various stages of my career. And, you know, either year over year, it was either shipping or owning larger changes or kind of mentoring and developing people on different teams and in different roles. And in that time span that you were growing and accelerating as an engineer through the management ranks, this was around a time where other Facebook engineers I've talked to have talked about a characteristic of this time where engineers who could build something or lead something themselves and earn credibility in the organization were able to move upwards in a way that it sounded kind of natural. And and I think this is just a characteristic of an organization when it's at a certain smaller size, but it's in kind of a hyper growth, the product is in kind of a hyper growth state. And there's this somewhat natural selection process by which people move up the ranks. Does that fit your recollection of the process? Hmm. I don't know if I would have thought of characterized it that way. One thing you mentioned the kind of phrase natural selection. I don't know that it was so limited, like only certain people who passed the threshold and kind of made it. I actually thought it was a great culture in that it really tried to recognize different forms of impact as people grew. And so kind of what I was referring to earlier, if you looked at your engineering director, or whatever level of engineer, there are many, many different types of people that would fit in that level. So I actually thought it was a pretty wide range of, of recognizing people at different levels. I think for me, similarly, I don't know that there was any one thing that I did that kind of helped me uh, grow specifically. I think I actually switched teams a decent number of times at the company. And so I ended up working on many different parts of the product. And, and maybe that was part of it, or for me, it was this more well-rounded kind of experience working on some of the core full-stack products. But yeah, I wouldn't chalk it up to a specific thing that I did. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget 
and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. And you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. When you move into management, your job can become much more about human interaction and empathy than specific engineering problems. There's also an element of politics that comes into play more acutely. What adjustments did you have to make to optimize for that new set of roles? My first switch into management was actually really quite gradual. The first team I managed was just three people, including myself. So I remember the day-to-day really didn't look that different. I'd say over time, I wouldn't really describe it as shifting fully towards human interaction versus engineering, but it's it was a more depth versus, sorry, breadth versus depth approach, where on the management side, I felt much more accountable for a wider range of problems, including people ones, but also technical ones. A big part of kind of making that adjustment was really accepting the new role. One example I always give is as an engineer, and I think this is true of many engineers, I was a bit of a perfectionist. I thought a lot about things in black and white and designing systems. I'd be pretty like fixated on really exhaustively listing out all the edge cases, figuring out that whatever I was building worked well. And as a manager, it took time, but I realized you just can't solve problems that way. Like people are not systems, they're not optimization problems. And you kind of just have to accept there's a range of solutions and there isn't one true great answer. So I think a lot of it is just personal acceptance. One thing that I found kind of funny when I look back on it now, I don't know if you put much stock into Myers-Briggs, but I was a lifelong J. So kind of someone who saw things in black and white, was, was very kind of prescriptive about how I thought about the world. And after several years of managing, I actually shifted over to a P. And I think that's pretty descriptive and kind of summarizes how I've changed how I think about people and systems. What was your interaction with VP level employees or kind of the higher ranks of the hierarchy? Yeah, one thing that was really great about the culture was how non-title driven it was. So when you say the VP people, it actually takes me a second to think about who were the VPs that were very, like, that come to mind. I, I think I did work with them for sure. I think in different product review forums, like taking on new projects goal setting, reviews, and so forth. But I also think VP level employees worked quite a bit just day to day with people across the organization. They could give feedback on pretty minor changes. They could run into them in the hall. They could kind of chime in on different discussions. So it was a pretty collaborative environment across levels. What do you miss most about Facebook's engineering culture? I do really miss that there was a very strong feeling of collaboration. I think everyone felt like you were part of a broader company or mission and you're working on something together. So, so that was a big part of it. On the technical side, 
I appreciate this much more years after leaving, but it's a uniquely innovative place when it comes to developer tooling and investing in infrastructure and efficiency. I remember as an employee, we had these engineering all hands every, I think, quarter or every few months. And at every engineering all hands, I would joke that the infra team would get up on stage and they would just tell us again and again that everything just got faster and cheaper. (laughs) And I realize now that's pretty incredible. If you think about the rate of growth, the fact that the underlying infrastructure just continued to get faster and cheaper. And I think that you really had this amazingly strong foundation of developer efficiency, developer tools that you could work on top of as an engineer. So that's something that I think is pretty special. There's a saying that I've heard from other people who've come on the show to talk about Facebook is that you throw out best practices that are yet less useful when applied in the scope of a high-scale social networking product. Were there any kind of best practices or computer science things in your tool belt that you threw out because of the uniqueness of the company or that were accepted because of the the uniqueness of the company? There was one practice that I wouldn't say was good or bad. It got thrown out, but I think changed quite a bit as the company evolved. And this was related to documentation. So coming in, you hear a lot about design docs and these kind of extensive overviews of systems that you might write up when you're trying to launch a new product or rewrite some infrastructure. And in the first few years of Facebook, it was very light on that type of documentation. Instead, I'd say the bias was towards explaining context in the code, in individual changes, iteration, kind of testing things live, at least internally, and kind of iterating on it that way. So documentation was very integrated into development and there weren't as many standalone docs. I think that changed over time, but early on, it was actually really great for the culture and I think efficiency. So one example was you could be building some new feature on some part of the code base and trying to figure out how these decisions were made. And you can actually just look at old previous code changes in place and read the old comments from from engineers from years ago, and you would kind of instantly understand what was going on. So it's basically this like layer cake of documentation that you could kind of wade through as you're making changes. And I think if you ha- if we had used standalone documents more heavily, that would have been a lot harder and would have maybe slowed us down in terms of iterating much more quickly. I think that's probably changed as the company has grown, but it's something I remember pretty well from the early days. What did Facebook do to make sure that its culture was able to scale as the company grew? Culture is it's such a funny thing to define. And I, I feel that a lot of it comes through most strongly in everyday actions. So culture is preserved if you, and it kind of as you work, you really understand how it relates to what you're doing. When I think of the engineering culture, I think this is very true at Facebook where it was very clear in every change that you made. So code that you wrote, you were testing, you're deploying, you're interacting with other engineers online or chatting about and testing features. I think that's where the culture really came through. And part of that was definitely the use of certain types of tooling and cultural norms around code review, iteration, comments that I think was in some ways easier to preserve because it was found in these smaller actions versus some sort of top-down kind of imposed culture. When you were at Facebook, you started and led the women in tech group. 
how has the workplace environment around diversity changed from your perspective when you started working in tech about a decade ago? There are a lot more young people who are excited about tech these days, which I think is really great to see. There are just generations of new engineers who I th- who both grew up using many of the products and services that you know, 10 years ago, very innovative and new. So they grew up on them. They really understand them to a deep level. And so I see what I see is just a broader interest in tech and how it affects the world coming uh, that comes from a lot of these young engineers. So I think that's really exciting. And I think that applies to if you look at the different backgrounds of new engineers and there are people today in tech who 10 years ago just would not have become software engineers and would have seen it as a much more limited role. So you have people who came into it because of interest in other scientific fields or even yeah, just completely different reasons. You're now at Stripe. Stripe is, at its core, a, a very different product than Facebook at its core. How do the cultures of the two organizations differ? Something that's very true at both companies is the sense of being very mission-driven and having a very clear mission that you're working on. Something that I, I think is very exciting is, you know, if you ask someone walking down the street, probably at either company, you know, why do you work there? What is the company hoping to achieve? They'll be able to give you an answer. So I think that's very similar and great. Of course, the actual missions and the products are very different. So at Stripe, mission is to increase the GDP of the internet. And in many ways, it's a very economic, it's a very infrastructure focused mission. So as a result, when you think of product development and building teams, there's an emphasis on building this API infrastructure layer that I think ties into how you think about your users, how do you design your products to sort of, in some ways, be more static so you can preserve all these different versions of the API at once. With Facebook, it's a much more, you know, making the world more open and connected. It's dynamic. It's about creating interaction and collaboration. So it ends up being a more iterative, collaborative environment. Facebook was born in a time where you needed to roll your own infrastructure. You needed to build your own data centers and so on. Stripe is built in a time where you have cloud infrastructure. How does that affect the developments within the organization? In many respects, it's not that different in that If you think about the engineering org or even your system diagram internally, there are different components that we manage by different teams. So I would say the big difference is a company like Facebook, which has its own data centers and its own full stack infrastructure, there'll be entire teams that exist to go, you know, install new racks or check on data center health or or kind of do all of those things that you don't need at a company that's cloud-based. So I would say the big difference is there are just certain teams that don't exist. But if you step back and you actually look at the interfaces between teams, the teams that sit on top of the infrastructure, I think it's very similar. You still have teams that kind of manage the cloud infrastructure even if they're not building some of the low-level primitives themselves, they're still managing the internal interfaces that product teams would use to develop on top of. At Stripe, there's a big emphasis on the writing process, like writing down your thoughts. And this was something I also experienced at Amazon with the six-pager memo process that's quite popular there. At Facebook, 
Was there any emphasis on writing or was there an alternative emphasis perhaps on building product and showing your thoughts through code? Yeah, I think iteration was a pretty big part of the Facebook development practice. So there was focus on prototyping, iteration, interactivity. So being able to test something, being able to visualize something was really important. Yeah, so I think there was definitely a bias towards that. There have been multiple books written about Google's engineering culture. I recognize you have not worked at Google, but I think in the formular days of of Facebook, a lot of people were looking at Google as kind of maybe a model for how Facebook could develop its engineering culture. Facebook was distinguished from Google. Do you have a sense of how the engineering cultures contrasted or what Facebook did deliberately different? It's hard to say given not a ton of experience with Google. I did intern at Google many years ago, but I wouldn't want to extrapolate too much from a single internship. A few differences that I'd say were at least talked about. One was related to, there was a bit more of a technical kind of purism of Google. One example was even when it came to code reviews, which are really a fundamental building block of you know, development on a team. At Facebook, it had a really high bar for code reviews, certainly. So every piece of code was carefully reviewed. There would be a lot of back and forth and just making sure that the right tests are in place and everything worked properly. So there was always that from the beginning. But what was interesting about Google is there were many layers of that process. So I don't know if this is still true today, but 10 years ago, you had owner's files where specific owners of every project had to be a reviewer, or you had language readability where you had to be a qualified reviewer for each of the languages. So C++ or Java or whatever language you're working in. And so you kind of added these layers that I think were in the name of, you know, holding very specific technical bar, kind of having this clear process about related to what does it mean to be technically proficient in each of these layers. And I think Facebook didn't really have any of that. It was much more around is the thing working the way it should be? Do we you know, have the right checks and balances? But it was much less focused on each of these kind of sub-dimensions of, of breaking down the technical quality. So that's one example. I'm sure it manifested in many ways. I think the engineering ladders and levels were, were obviously very different as well, where Google has this kind of had a more, you know, I would say like perhaps fluid range between an engineering IC and a manager and a tech lead. And so there would be people maybe performing, like you kind of were working across the spectrum. While I think, at least when I was at Facebook, the two ladders were more distinct. And while there's a lot of overlapping responsibilities, you were sort of either people managing officially or you weren't. There are so many good podcasts to listen to these days, and it can be hard to make time to sit down and read a full-length book. And there are more good books than ever. I like business books and self-help books and history books, but I don't have time to get through all the books that I want to. Blinkist gives you the best takeaways, the need-to-know information, and the important points of thousands of nonfiction books condensed into 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I like Blinkist because I like audio, 
and Blinkist is an innovative, useful audio format. You can get a free 7-day trial and support Software Engineering Daily by going to Blinkist.com slash SEDaily and signing up. On Blinkist, I've listened to a few very long books about China in their 15-minute form, and I also use Blinkist to review great books that I've read in the past, such as Principles by Ray Dalio or Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Try out your free 7-day trial by going to Blinkist.com slash SEDaily and signing up. That's Blinkist.com slash SEDaily, and get those books condensed into 15 minutes, and get more throughput in your book reading activities. Thanks to Blinkist for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. When you were doing management at Facebook, were there any procedures that you got into the habit of doing that you found particularly useful, like weekly one-on-ones or you know, doing something with your calendar, something specific that stands out as a habit that really helped you out as a manager? I learned a lot of the tactics while there. So things you describe, like the weekly one-on-ones or calendaring. But one thing that I've definitely taken with me is it was a very cross-functional environment. So there was a big emphasis on, as an engineering manager, on what you were doing. Was it the right thing? Was it working well? Were the products that you were building the right ones? And what was the user impact? So as a result, you had to work very closely with product managers and product designers and just people across the organization. So we had a good practice of these essentially the cross-functional meetings. You had a very, very tight communication and feedback loop with all of these different partners. So I remember something you know I tell teams now is when you work with a product manager, it's a bit like a marriage, like everything you're talking about, you should have sh- some shared understanding of everything that's going on with your product, your team, and how do you continue to communicate just almost on a daily or even hourly basis at times to keep in sync. So that's something I've done with my teams is Typically, we have project-based or team-based cross-functional group meetings or group channels that we make quite a lot of use of just so that everyone's on the same page and everyone's keeping an eye on what the end results of the work are. Today, you're spending a lot of time in the APAC region in your work at Stripe. How does the Asian social networking market compare to that of the U.S.? You can definitely see the presence of the global players across the region. So Facebook, Instagram, these are products that are used across the region as well. What's interesting is how they tend to use these products and the emphasis on messaging or smaller group communities. So WhatsApp is very popular in different parts of the region, but so are other messaging apps like Line or WeChat from different companies across Asia. So I think the big dimensions are there's a pretty big melting plot of international and regional companies that are building products and people kind of use a mix of them. I think there's a bigger emphasis on smaller group interactions and there are some products that are just very, very localized. So they will have, you know, all of the instructions and settings only in a certain language. So maybe it's only in Chinese, which might make it a little difficult for people out who can't read Chinese to use them. And I think there are many products that that look like that as well. 
there was a long period of time where I think the conventional wisdom was that social networking was a winner-take-all market. And today, it seems much more like social is almost like an API or an application component that can just exist in a product. And I think about the social networks I use on a regular basis. I mean, I've got Quora and Twitter and obviously Facebook. I use Instagram some. But it feels like we're in the very early stages of social networking. Why did we think it was a winner-take-all market for so long? And do you have any beliefs on how the market will develop in the near future? I don't know that I personally really thought it was a winner-take-all market. Just, I think early on, you know, I had actually used a few international social network products when I was in college. I thought a lot about the way that we message and the way that we have different communities for different types of interests. So I don't know that I personally ever thought it was winner-take-all. It's interesting to see that I think you're right, the industry perspective has shifted. One thing that's really interesting about living in APAC is you kind of see that it's just not a winner-take-all world. Like there are so many regional differences. And as I mentioned, there's like language restrictions, there's cultural ones. There's just a desire for people to have different groups. So I think this is actually not something new. It's just maybe something people are are looking at differently. One of the things that distinguishes the United States from at least China, and I believe this is true across Asia, is the willingness to pay for things using, you know, using the internet. And obviously some of this is due to the whole leapfrog effect and skipping the credit card and going straight to mobile payments. But is there also some kind of cultural factor? Like, for example, people pay for podcasts on a regular basis in Asia, which makes me very jealous. <laughs> it's real hard to comment because I think it's so regional. It's so country specific or market specific. So, I mean, one thing I can see is how hard or easy is it to access that content, right? I think in the US and in many markets, you get used to having an abundance of content that is free. And so that kind of creates certain market dynamics where you just expect things to be free, but there's also a pretty you know vibrant ecosystem around ads and monetization in other ways. I would say in some regional markets, there's just a shortage of content. So you might be willing to pay for things that you see as premium because it's harder to get access to them otherwise. One thing I found is just, it's surprisingly still sometimes hard to find the right content. Like one example is, you know, I talked to a lot of folks around here who sometimes ask, oh, where can I find, you know, great engineering management advice or resources. And I think that's kind of funny. I think if you live in San Francisco, you're used to seeing, you know, new thought leadership posts or resources online posted basically all the time. And here it's just a little bit hard to discover that. And so there's, there's like, there's people seeking for, and I think would probably pay for it in a way that they wouldn't in San Francisco. But I also wouldn't generalize too much. Like one example is in Japan, it's actually culturally still not that common to pay for things online. There's sort of a degree of trust that's missing with online payments and people still in the majority prefer to use cash or to pay after receiving a service and there's kind of deferred payment models. So even when you speak about Asia or the world, it really depends on the specific country or market you're talking about. Well, not to generalize further, but what have you learned about the Asian startup ecosystem that has surprised you? And how does the Asian startup ecosystem contrast with the Silicon Valley one that you were so used to? 
there's a really exciting feeling of growth and momentum in the region where if you look at just the maturity of the markets and the companies, they're at a different stage. I think it's newer. It's really only in the last several years where you have bigger companies growing and, and building large engineering teams. So I think it's at a bit of a different maturity level, but I think the momentum and growth is really strong. And so it creates this really exciting energy, I would say, in the region. Some things are very similar. I think people use cloud platforms. They use very similar development tools. You hear about React, you hear about GraphQL, you hear about GCP, AWS, like people are really using a lot of the same tools. I think what's different is there are fewer people with as much experience or depth of experience in using some of these tools because these products and companies are relatively new and and coming online. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm and, and desire to learn from best practices in other parts of the world. But what's neat is they're looking at the whole world. So I think there's looking at the valley and, and trying to understand what works there. There's looking at China and India and, and the big mature companies that have done really well there and this desire to kind of learn from the best across the world. One reason that you're in the APAC region is to improve the product of Stripe to the people who are using Stripe in the APAC region. And one way that the Stripe product, I think, differentiates from the Facebook product is that much of what Stripe has to do is abstracting away legacy payments infrastructure from developers. And so you have to deal with some legacy infrastructure, whereas Facebook is, to a large part, you're writing its own future and doesn't really have to integrate with anybody. How does that change your approach to engineering when you have to kind of understand this archaeological dig of payment systems? For one, there are a lot of engineers at Stripe that have to really understand how these partner systems work. So I think there's a lot of time invested in really reading the specs, like understanding how the API works and making sure the integration works really well. I think this actually happens at every company. There are many aspects of Facebook that also works with partners or integrates other APIs. So that's not that dissimilar, but I do think it's part of the core service and product at Stripe in a way that's pretty different. One thing that I have found as a trend among the most successful engineering organizations or startups, you might say, technology companies, is the charisma of the founders. And I've talked about this with investors who have come on the show also, the aspect of charisma and I guess the other words that you might associate with with a good leader What are the characteristics of the CEOs that you've interacted with, Mark Zuckerberg and perhaps Patrick and John Collison, that you have found particularly relevant in their ability to lead organizations for such a long period of time and kind of continually be able to recruit and inspire people to work for them? I mentioned earlier that the mission and being mission driven is a big part of the fabric of both companies. And that really comes from the founders and from the CEOs, in my opinion. So I think that's something that I really notice and appreciate is how much people care about what we're doing and the mission and how it really ties into 
every decision the company makes or everything that every employee is doing. So that's a huge, that's a huge part of it. And, and kind of bringing that passion to communicating the mission internally and externally is a really big part of it as well. I think another one is detail orientation, just really understanding how the product works and thinking through the user, the edge cases or how different changes would influence users. I think that's something that I've also seen to be very true in both companies. Raylene Young, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Commercial open source software businesses build their business model around an open source software project. Software businesses built around open source software operate differently than those built around proprietary software. The Open Core Summit is a conference for commercial open source software. If you are building a business around open source software, check out the Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. Go to opencoresummit.com to register. At Open Core Summit, we'll discuss the engineering, business strategy, and investment landscape of commercial open source software businesses. Speakers will include people from HashiCorp, GitLab, Confluent, MongoDB, and Docker. I will be emceeing the event, and I'm hoping to do some on-stage podcast-style dialogues. I'm excited about the Open Core Summit because open source software is the future. Most businesses don't gain that much by having their software be proprietary. And as it becomes easier to build secure software, there will be even fewer reasons not to open source your code. I love commercial open source businesses because there are so many interesting technical problems. You've got governance issues, you got a strange business model. I'm looking forward to exploring these curiosities at the Open Core Summit, and I hope to see you there. If you want to attend, check out opencoresummit.com. The conference is September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. Open source is changing the world of software, and it's changing the world that we live in. Check out the Open Core Summit by going to opencoresummit.com. Wow! Wow! 